0: Everyone, welcome to Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila. Nando, what's going on? How are you?
1: Feeling good, feeling fresh. Saturday morning. You know, see the people in the East Coast, it's like 1 p.m. We're we're fresh, <laughs> ready to go at 10 a.m. on a Saturday for you people. I'm feeling good. fresh. How is are you a, feeling?
0: Fresh is a strong word for me. I'm not feeling fresh at all. I'm no? so exhausted. It's been a crazy week. Yeah, I mean, just you know, it's just like the. Daily grind and all the, uh, uh, political news that comes along with it. Um, but. As you know, I'm always excited to do this show and, uh, we have a massive, massive show planned for you guys today. We're going to have David Sorota on to talk a little bit about strategy and how progressives, um, can, you know, get some concessions from corporate Democrats. What's the best way to go about that? Um, later in the show, I'll be talking about this looming eviction crisis that, uh, it doesn't even seem Congress plans to do anything real about even in this uh you know relief bill uh back and forth what they're negotiating doesn't even come close to preventing millions of Americans from being uh, thrown out of their homes and uh the tech industry facing a little bit of uh prosecution which I'm actually pretty surprised about that's what Nando will be yeah. talking about yeah
1: yeah very very surprising developments in tech and I'm, I'm very excited to talk to David Sordo because I've long been a fan of his. Uh, even before he became kind of uh, one of Bernie's uh, top spokespeople. Um, and I think most people might be known in that role, uh, you know, from Twitter and just from being involved in the Bernie campaign. Uh, but Sorota has for a long, long, long time been one of this country's best investigative journalists. I mean, in terms of sheer production, I just, I have no, I have no concept as to how he does it, like how he produces so many scoops. Um, I mean, he, like he was, for years, he was like reporting on like, you know, crooked uh, local courthouse schemes. Uh, you know, always following the money, like just scoop after scoop after scoop after scoop. Um, in a in a way that I just I'm like I don't understand how how he did it. So um, I'm very very excited to talk to him because he's someone who has just been in the thick of it for decades and has for sure. definitely learned a lot. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I. I've always been a, a huge, um, you know, admirer of his work and yeah, you're right. I mean, every day I, I'm of course subscribed to his newsletter. So I get a story from him every day and I'm like, every single day, another story <laughs> every yeah, like day, how? every day.
1: I don't understand. Who are these people? Yeah. Like who are these, who are I his know. sources? I mean, he's got like, he's got like 69 trillion deep throats. Wow. That was, that, I didn't mean it to, that was un, unintentional, but yeah. Uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, um if you guys haven't already uh, sign up to get updates from the Daily Poster, that's the publication yeah. that he um, you know, created after uh Bernie Sanders's uh primary uh run ended. And it's just it's a fantastic source um yeah. of daily investigative journalism. It's very valuable. Um but before we get to our uh, Verso read today, I did want to just give everyone an update on something that um, you know, we talked about on a previous show, Nando, and it was about uh, the Amazon workers in Alabama who are attempting to unionize. There have been some Mm -hmm. positive updates on that front. So I wanted to just kind of update the audience about it. So the uh, National Labor uh, Relations Board has determined that um, uh, a union pushing to represent Amazon uh, workers in Alabama has enough support to hold an election. So, um, you know, it's a small update, but it's a good update. This is this is promising news. um, And of course, Amazon, I'm sure, is going to go into full disinformation mode to try to dissuade these workers from, you know, voting in favor to unionize. Um, Amazon argued in its filings that the size of the proposed bargaining unit at the um, Alabama warehouse was more than 5000 workers, um, making it difficult for the retail wholesale. It's amazing that they even tr- like try to do this argument. Um uh, making it difficult for the retail, wholesale, and department store union to rally enough people to call for a vote. Uh, but the board determined that the union has demonstrated enough support, and so they're going to move forward. Um, and so it's good news. Uh, we'll see how this all plays out. But um, much love to you know, the workers in Alabama who are doing what they can to make this happen. They definitely deserve representation.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's that's that's a trick, right? Is to just expand the size of the bargaining unit um, to to make it much bigger than it actually is, because then they say like, oh, look, they only got this per- this smaller percentage of the total bargaining unit um, to sign union cards, and therefore the union can't proceed. Uh, you know, it's funny like, you know, this is a factory and the worker, like the Amazon's like own internal memos that they've, that they have access to from 2018, 2019 say that this factory, um, uh, or I don't know if it's 2019, whatever, whatever the years they have internal memos that show that this factory was, you know, 1500 workers, which is what the, what the union drive is alleging. And, and Amazon's just like, no, there's 5,000 workers there. And it's like, what, <laughs> you know, like yeah. this is pretty easily verifiable. Um, so yeah, it's, um, it's, you know, hopefully it goes ahead. I mean, it's going to be a long, long drawn out fight and it's going to be pretty vicious, but for whatever reason, it's, you know, the NLRB is kind of, is, is playing ball. I mean, it's shocking, you know, given just the makeup of it and, 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 and and so, so yeah, hopefully, hopefully that, that, I mean, it could, it's again, it's a small first step, but it could potentially be, uh, utterly transformative of if, if a company mm-hmm. like Amazon was, was unionized. I mean, it's beyond things that we can even comprehend in, in this, with our small brains in this current moment. So, um, yeah, that's definitely some very welcome news.
0: So um, there's a good way to expand our small brains, and that's by reading more. Uh, yeah. And luckily, our partner, uh, you know, they uh, publish books. Expand they your do. mind. Uh, Nando, tell us more about that.
1: Well, you know, if you join the Verso Book Club, Anna, you can get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off all books for as long as you are a subscriber. To celebrate 50 years of radical publishing, each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. In December, Verso selected the best books published from this year, plus, comrades will get their brand new comrade canvas tote bag you know if you want to get your lady a good gift for the holidays the comrade tote bag is a good one the comrade tier is twenty dollars a month and if you join in december you'll get burn it down feminist manifestos for the revolution edited by brian Faz. long live the post horn by vigdis Hjorth, called the best post office novel ever written by the new york times sinews of war and trade shipping and capitalism in the arabian peninsula by laleh kalili And the Verso Book of Dissent, the revolutionary words from three millennia of rebellion and resistance, plus the Verso tote bag with comrade in elongated black type on the front and the Verso logo on the back. Yeah, baby.
0: I love it. I love it. And I also love our decode segment. So um, let's get right to it, Nando. Tell me about what's going on with uh, Facebook and, um, you know, other tech companies that are being targeted by prosecutors.
1: Well, Anna and the dear viewers at home, are you terrified of a future that is essentially a techno-feudal dystopia? Well, this Decode segment is for you. Overall, the pandemic has heightened trends that were existing before, and one of them was the growing power of big tech. I mean, just look at this chart. The tech stocks are surging. Apple became the first company ever valued at $2 trillion. Amazon, Microsoft, Alphabet, which is Google, and Facebook are not far behind. But something really big happened in the last week, and it hasn't gotten as much attention as I think it probably should.
2: This morning, federal and state authorities want to break up
3: Facebook. The world's largest social media company hit with two major lawsuits, one by the Federal Trade Commission, the other by attorneys general in 46 states. Both lawsuits allege Facebook illegally crushed its competition, violating antitrust laws and creating a monopoly.
1: That's right. 46 46 state attorneys general, always wanted to say that, are alleging that Facebook is an illegal monopoly. And then just days later, 38 state attorneys general filed a similar lawsuit against the other dominant player in online advertising, Google.
2: The Department of Justice is suing Google today in what is the largest antitrust case against a tech company and more than 20 years. Our tech reporter, Brian Fung, has been following this. He's on the story this morning. I mean, this is the biggest, really, since since Microsoft, right? What is the DOJ alleging here?
4: Yeah, it's the biggest antitrust case against a tech company in at least a generation here. Uh, What the DOJ is alleging is that Google controls 80% of the search market in the United States, and it's using its power to hurt rivals and damage competition. The Trump
1: administration and a coalition of red and blue states working together to take on Google and Facebook head on. I mean, this really kind of came out of nowhere. And it's hard to overstate just how big of a deal this is. I mean, the last time the government stepped in to break up a company was Microsoft back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And since then, there's been a ton of corporate consolidation in almost every sector from banking to entertainment to beer. John Oliver did a whole segment about it. And I'm just going to use that clip because his team already did all the research for it.
3: Look, and airlines here are just the beginning. Uh, The rental car business is now 90% dominated by just three companies. Uh, The U.S. beer industry is 70% controlled by just two companies. And online search engines are, of course, as we all know, dominated by one major player. That's right, say it with me. Bing! That's right. Bing, the best way to Google something. (laughs) In fact, look, full disclosure here, even our own parent company, Time Warner, is currently trying to merge with AT&T, which makes this story a little dangerous for us to do. Although, you know, that is presuming that AT&T executives managed to get their shitty service working long enough to see it. AT&T, it's the top telecom company around, alphabetically, and nothing else.
1: Thank you for that, John. (laughs) And the Federal Trade Commission, which regulates mergers and acquisitions, have basically sat back and allowed all of this consolidation to happen without any pushback at all, until now. Now, we won't know what the outcome of these lawsuits will be for probably years, but it is a step in the right direction because the only entities that are large enough and powerful enough to confront these tech behemoths are national governments. I mean, we've seen how Amazon can just run roughshod over Seattle's local government when they tried to pass a very modest tax to fund more homeless shelters. And even a state as big as California was powerless to legislate Uber's employment model, culminating in the passage of Prop 22. And while the European Union has been pushing back on big tech for a few years now, the American government had basically done nothing up until now. And I want to focus on the case of Facebook first because I think it will be easy to understand for me and most people, given that it's products that most of us use all the time every day. The key to understanding the government's case is Facebook's acquisition of Instagram and WhatsApp. Here's New York's State Attorney General, Letitia James, who is leading the onslaught.
2: The two most glaring examples of this unlawful scheme were Instagram and WhatsApp. Facebook bought Instagram for $1 billion in 2012 when the company did not even have a cent in revenue. And in 2014, Facebook paid the extravagant amount of $19 billion for WhatsApp, which was far more than industry experts and even Facebook itself valued the company.
1: Yeah, and, you know, Back in 2012, uh, back in 2010, when we were all blissfully surfing the web on our computers rather than our phones, a small little company called Instagram was founded in Silicon Valley. And as smartphone technology improved, and we spent more and more time on the internet on our phones, Instagram's filters and cooler design and general newness mean, meant it was catching fire while Facebook's stodgy old desktop design made it feel like a thing of the past. The kids, as they say, were grammin'. So Zuck just bought it. And as Letitia points out, that sent a powerful message.
2: They also sent a clear message to the industry. Don't step on Facebook's turf or, as one industry executive put it, you will face the wrath of Mark. (laughs) <laughs> Wait,
1: Cal, i just want to i want to play that clip again for the people because i, I just want people to notice that it's just so savage that cnbc ran that press conference while uh side by side having a live graph of facebook stock price just collapsing by the
2: second look, look check it out they also sent a clear message to the industry don't step on facebook's turf or as one industry executive put it You will face the wrath of Mark.
1: (laughs) Oh, baby, the good old stonks. (laughs) So yeah, back in 2012, Facebook bought its most threatening rival, and all was well for Mark. For a time. Because the kids, they're fickle. The fads, they're changing all the time. And in 2013, there was a new player on the scene that all the teens were just raving about
3: turn now to the latest app that has caught fire with teens. It's called oh, yeah. Snapchat. You know, the appeal is it says you can share a snapshot with friends without any risk of an embarrassing viral moment because the photo is
0: programmed to vanish seconds after it's set. But is it encouraging kids to send inappropriate photos that actually won't disappear? ABC's Lindsay Davis has more on the controversy.
4: This message will self-destruct in 30 seconds.
2: It's technology right out of an Inspector Gadget episode. Teens everywhere believe they're sending their own self-destructing messages online with an app called Snapchat.
1: Yeah, in the immortal words of Yo Gotti, Snapchat me that... The family show. Can't go there. So, the kids were leaving Facebook for Instagram, and then they were leaving Instagram and Facebook for Snapchat. So, Zuck tried to do the thing that he had done just a year earlier by his competitor. Except Snapchat turned down his $3 billion offer, thinking, hey, we got the momentum. We can crush the Zuck. But they underestimated the wrath of Mark. And his dominant position in the marketplace, because he owned Facebook and Instagram, he had way more users than Snapchat. And in a way, that's part of the appeal of a social media platform. The more people that are on it, the more social pressure there is to join it. And Snapchat had this cool new thing where you could send your nude and it would immediately disappear. So if Zuck couldn't buy them, he just copied the technology in order to crush them when they launched Instagram stories. And apparently, Facebook executives were pretty open about this.
0: Mike, you broke this story overnight and you quoted Kevin Systrom as saying other companies deserve all the credit on this. That's not something you hear Facebook executives say very often.
1: I think it was kind of hard for Instagram and uh, Kevin to really deny that Snapchat pioneered the format here. You know? So Facebook either buys its rivals or use its market size to crush its rivals. And to me, it seems a pretty open and shut antitrust case. Facebook is a monopoly. And for its part, sorry, I just knocked my computer. For its part, Google is also an open and shut monopoly. I mean, seriously, does anyone use any other search engine? And the question is, why should I care? I mean, boohoo, some tech assholes are getting screwed by Zuckerberg. This is totally unrelated to me. Well, for one thing, the internet has become a sort of virtual reality for mankind, and having a handful of private tech companies control that space is just bad in a lot of ways. But concretely, for starters, Facebook and Google's dominance in the online ad market has essentially killed journalism. I mean, before, it used to be that websites and publishers could control their own ad sales, and it was never a great model, but it did lead to a bunch of sustainable news organizations. Remember, when there used to be a bunch of websites that you could just read and all had their own little delightful tone and focus. Well, they're all gone because Facebook and Google have essentially hoovered up all of the advertising money in recent years. As more and more of our online time migrated away from computers and onto our phones, our time spent has basically been within apps on our phone rather than through a browser, this means that the control of the advertising went to the app, i.e. Facebook, instead of the publisher, i.e. your favorite website or newspaper. And that means that Facebook and Google just swallowed up all of those ad dollars. And this has basically killed local reporting and investigative journalism, even in pretty big cities. For example, Pittsburgh, with a metro population of about 2.3 million people, does not have a daily newspaper. And while I think that the effect of social media-driven fake news is somewhat overblown in the U.S., I mean, I still think that the problems with the way America gets its news predate social media, and indeed, the biggest cancer in the American news ecosystem is, in my opinion, still television news, both local news stations that are essentially PR operations for police departments, and cable news, which just turns our brains into mush. And of course, who could forget the most consequential bit of fake news in my lifetime, that time that the New York Times said Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. But it is hard to ignore certain realities. I mean, there's a Twitter account, for example, that automatically posts Facebook's top 10 most shared posts of the day. And every single day, it looks a lot like this. (laughs) And this problem has had real effects, for example, outside of our borders. For example, fake news delivered through WhatsApp, which is owned by Facebook, Um, was key in the rise of Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. Here's Glenn Greenwald tweeting, Pretty fascinating story, scandal, involving Brazil's election. Bolsonaro has benefited from a tsunami of fake news spread en masse on WhatsApp, making mass media irrelevant. It was revealed today that corporations have paid millions for this, which is illegal in several ways. While the West obsesses on the spread of disinformation via Facebook and Twitter posts, Brazil is showing that WhatsApp, which is huge in Brazil but lots of other places, can be more powerful, as it seems to be personal messages from friends and is distributed by the millions. But beyond the threat to journalism that these platforms pose, there is something even more fundamental, and that is that they are turning our every social interaction, our friendships, our relationships, our families into opportunities for profit. And the effects of this are predictably very, very bad. In The Guardian, last week's weekend's guest, Richard Seymour, writes, quote, social media addiction is rarely understood in this extreme light. Nonetheless, users often describe it wrecking their careers and relationships. The complaints are almost always the same. Users end up constantly distracted, unproductive, anxious, needy, and depressed, yet are also curiously susceptible to advertising. Patrick Garrett wrote of his social media addiction causing a desperate, hollow pressure of waste in his working life as a journalist. Social media addiction has been linked repeatedly to increased depression. Interaction with the platforms correlates with a major decline in mental health, while increased screen time, or time on device, may be contributing to a recent surge in teen suicides. Facebook's own guileful way of presenting the issue was to claim that while passive consumption of social media content could pose mental health risks, more engagement... Could improve well being. This claim, while not supported by the research, would mean more profitable data for the site. Ah, isn't that funny? And we can all recognize this behavior, even if we are not ourselves in a full blown mental health crisis. We can see echoes of that in our own lives. We may know people who have been lost to Facebook insanity or relationships that were destroyed by it. So now, the first few years of the Biden administration will be shaped by this landmark antitrust case. It will be interesting to see just how the politics of this will play out. I mean, on the one hand, there is a growing political consensus, not just amongst the population, but amongst politicians themselves, that we need to do something about the power of tech. But on the other hand, the Biden administration is quietly stuffing his transition team with a bunch of Facebook and Google people. So we'll see how that plays out. But while I applaud this move by the brave attorneys general, it is true that, not to sound too much like Hillary Clinton, breaking up the Facebook into its constituent parts won't end races. No, I'm kidding. But breaking up Facebook into its parts is just a first step. And zooming out a bit, it is true that things like social media and especially search engines are probably natural monopolies, meaning that they don't necessarily work better when there are a bunch of smaller firms competing. Think of something like a subway system. It used to be that the subways in New York were run by private companies, competing with each other rather than coordinating with each other. And as you can expect, That was absolute chaos. A subway system needs to be that, a system, so that you can coordinate schedules, which routes need more or fewer trains, etc. There needs to be a single entity controlling all of that, which is why it's something that needs to be publicly administered for the benefit of all, rather than given to a private capitalist so that he can enrich himself. Social media and search are, in a way, similar. The search engine simply works better when there is one giant one receiving more inputs so it can better inform the results it gives to you. Ditto with social media. One of the points of social media is that everyone is on it. So if we're going to have things like search or social media, our goal should not be simply to limit their power, although that is a critical first step. Beyond antitrust, we should build towards a future in which these services are democratized. Last week on this show, Richard Seymour suggested that in the UK, the BBC could launch its own publicly owned social media. In the context of the US, the best example we have is probably the US Postal Service. I mean, the mail is a natural monopoly, and the Postal Service connects all of us in this country, is publicly owned, provides good unionized jobs to its workers, and critically protects our privacy in a very meaningful way. When we send a letter, we are quite confident that the Post is not going to try to get information out of it for profit. And Yanis Varoufakis, the former Greek finance minister, has put together proposals for how we can democratize these firms. He writes, "...even Google's fiercest critics use its technology to research their fiery tirades against it, or, more mundanely, to find their way around a foreign city. Let's be honest, life without Google would be awfully more tedious in a variety of important ways." But that is not a good reason to leave Google and the other tech giants alone. On the contrary, the nature and importance of their contribution make it imperative that they be placed under democratic control and not just because of the well-appreciated need to protect individual privacy. And this is true. I mean, We don't want to go back to a world pre-search engine. Even if that were possible, the cat is just out of the bag. And then he gets into what needs to be done. Google cannot credibly argue that the capital generating its profit stream was produced entirely privately. Every time you use Google's search engine to look up a phrase, concept, or product, or visit a place via Google Maps, you enrich Google's capital. And while the servers and software design, for example, have been produced capitalistically, a large part of Google's capital is produced by almost everyone. Every user, in principle, has a legitimate claim to be a de facto shareholder. Of course, while a substantial part of Big Tech's capital is produced by the public, there is no sensible way to compute personal contributions, which make it impossible to calculate what an individual share might be. But this impossibility can be turned into a virtue by creating a public trust fund to which companies like Google transfer a percentage, say 10% of their shares. Suddenly, every child has a trust fund with the accumulating dividends providing a universal basic income that grows in proportion to automation and in a manner that limits inequality and stabilizes the macro economy. We on the left have to be thinking about this kind of stuff. We cannot retreat from these debates because if we leave it to the libs, we're just going to get Microsoft 2.0. And we have to place this fight against big tech in the context of the broader fight against capital. Antitrust is just a part of it. But things like the Amazon unionization fight, which we talked about earlier in Bessemer, Alabama, which is still ongoing, is the other critical part.
0: Yeah, I love that. That was probably the best um, in depth uh, coverage of that story. And to be honest with you, I didn't know. Uh, what to really make of it. And and not that, you know, I didn't know how I felt about uh, the Justice Department um, prosecuting uh, Google and Facebook, but I was just curious, you know, where the left really stood on this. Um, And you made a really great point about how the end goal should be to nationalize uh, these tech companies um, and, you know, not have it be uh, a private company that still has a profit motive and when these are you know platforms that are being used by people like us for instance in order to spread a certain message well that gives too much power to a private company Uh, to decide what the narrative gets to be, what type of content, um, gets, uh, you know, floated to the top, what kind of content gets buried. And there's a very real reason why you see right wingers constantly trending on most of these, uh, websites. It's because they know how the algorithm works. Their pro corporate message, uh, their pro tax cut message aligns perfectly, uh, with these, uh, you know, various platforms. And so if you're doing content that's highly critical of, let's say, Facebook and its uh, practices in selling data, is that content going to do well on Facebook? Probably not. I mean, I'm not stupid enough to think that they don't, you know, game the algorithm um, to their advantage when it comes to certain content. And that's a problem. And I I love that you mentioned what this has done to local news, but also to you know national news, people who got their start uh putting out digital content, right? people who are yes. part of this new media revolution um every year, the rules change, and I feel like every year you find yourself trying to figure out what this opaque uh, algorithm is, and even when you do, do you really want to cater to a private company's algorithm. When you're covering news, which comes along with, I, I believe, an incredibly giant responsibility to inform people about what's really going on in the in the country, in the world. Um, so it's been it's been really difficult to survive on these platforms. It's been incredibly difficult to um, be able to cover the stories that you know you want to cover and you will cover, uh, but you know you're going to take a hit because the algorithm's going to work against you. And then one final point I just wanted to make about. Um, Just like the divisiveness of the content that you see go viral on these platforms. There's a reason for that. Um, You know, Mark Zuckerberg, it it reminds me a lot of what Nixon did when it came to this uh, study that he had commissioned on the war on drugs, right? He commissions this study. And uh, it's called the Schaefer report. Schaefer report finds that uh, marijuana legalization is not going to be a public health concern. It's not going to cause you know any any of the damage that conservative lawmakers felt that it would at the time. And so Nixon takes it and is like, no, ripping it up, throwing it away, right? And Zuckerberg did the same thing when he commissioned a study within his own company to see what kind of impact um, some of the content on the platform was having, and. The study found that, oh, actually, look, this in, it increases engagement. However, this divisive content, um, which increases engagement, is actually leading to a lot of division, a lot of you know um, political issues, all of that. And he just ripped it up. Don't care. Just going to move forward uh, because we want the engagement. And more engagement means we can harvest more private data, which they then turn around and sell to third parties. I mean, we've talked about this on the show so many times. Um, So I think this is a good first step. I think your analysis on this is right. And I think the ultimate goal should be to nationalize uh, these companies rather than have a private, uh, you know, have like a CEO like Mark Zuckerberg uh, decide, you know, what can and can't be uh, held on these uh, various platforms or on his platform. And then finally, um, face the wrath of Mark. That video. So good. I love it. She's I love it so much because. She is the best, but you know what I think about? I immediately think about like his face and his haircut, and I'm yeah. just like, man, <laughs> like,
1: it, we can't like, be led by that guy. Like, it's amazing how
0: much power that guy has. I know, yeah. I know, it's amazing.
1: That can't be that guy. Yeah. Can't be like our 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 dictator. Like, seriously, he's too ugly. I'm sorry. Um, that's just that's just uh, you know, we can't we can't allow that. I mean, it's you know the, <laughs> what what gets what's maddening about a lot of these debates is that because they 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 sort of get filtered through the partisan lens in which everything gets filtered in, in the United States. It's um, especially when it comes to tech platforms, regulation of what gets published on it or not. Um, You know, on the one hand uh, it is true that we don't want to give the, you know, Mark Zuckerberg the power to just decide what is fake news and what is real news. I mean, you can see how that's a problem. I mean, just this week um, there was a case of, of Instagram suppressing um, any content that criticized Biden for his support of the crime bill, like, um, it was really insane. You know, like this is like a yep. pretty conventional wisdom at this point that Biden was like a big part of the 1994 crime bill. Uh, but because like some fact checker in something like claimed that it didn't exactly cause mass incarceration or whatever, like some sort of little small insane fact checking detail, which is a debate you and I have had in the past about the role of fact checkers, um, that um, that they basically were taking down like people who were sharing that on Instagram and it's like that yeah that we shouldn't that that's crazy we sh- we can't allow that yeah. on the other hand you also like you, you look at just those Facebook top 10s every day and it's like yeah Dan Bongino Ben Shapiro Ben Shapiro Daily Wire you know like every single day and if you like if you're some kid and you start like going down a YouTube rabbit hole about like the Federal Reserve or something like you might start off in the right place but then like just the, the recommendation algorithm will just start taking you down a deeper and deeper insane rabbit hole and like something needs to be done about that that as well. So, but the because it's like filtered in like the sort of liberal conservative uh partisanship, the debate is maddening because the, the only real role is democratization. The only real thing to do is democratization that we should have a say in how these things are regulated, not you know, not yeah. letting so so that that's like one aspect of it. I mean, and the other aspect is, is to recognize, um, that things like Amazon and Google, like provide a really good and necessary service at this point in our lives. Like Amazon does provide an excellent service for consumers. Like it makes it very easy to get things, you know? So the question is then what do we do? What do we do about it? Like, how do we democratize that for all? And that's the, that's, that's the real debate we have to have. Like we can't. Like we're not gonna go back to a world of of like of how it used to be um you know the 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 goal is to to harness technological progress for all you know to 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 make it so that we all benefit from it rather than we're all just kind of slaves to it um that's the that's yeah. the real kind of debate that should that should be happening um so things like this scheme that you know Verifacus comes up with of like you know creating these kind of public ownership um Trust funds uh, that 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 kind of oversee these these um, these tech companies is is, a, is an interesting way to look at it. It's one example. I mean, there, there could, I'm sure there's many other schemes to do it, but the, the fundamental principle remains that it should just be owned by us for the benefit of us. Um, and and yeah, I and mean, I think that that's how we have to reframe this debate. But again, this antitrust thing. It, it's remarkable. I mean, it's just, I've, I did not expect this to happen. I mean, there's been kind of a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of organizing around it, you know, uh, especially around like this kind of anti-monopoly movement that's happened, which I have some disagreements with um, kind of ideologically. But I think that on on some level, we both kind of agree that there's just too much power uh, in these people right now. I mean, like, just look at the stock, like, I mean, just look at their market cap. I mean, it's it's insane. I mean, it's, like yeah. they dwarf the banks, they dwarf you know oil and gas companies. It's just their size, it's they're just their their sheer, the sheer power of them is just overwhelming, you know. And 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 we need to we need to do something to, to at first just stop that, you know, stop that growth, and then we can maybe sort of catch our breath and 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 decide what what we do after it, but. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out because I mean the Trump Trump administration kind of did a funny thing, right? I mean they just did it on the way out and kind of left it to Biden, which is which is which is you know fair enough, you know like because yeah. now now that it's ongoing, like the, the it's going to be a really bad look if Biden is going to be like, oh actually we're just going to re- re- remove all these things, you know? Um, I mean mm-hmm. he could just blame it all on Trump and the libs will probably go along with it, but I think that there is enough of a awareness from everyone that social media is there's a problem with it, like we're Maybe we can't articulate it. Maybe we don't know what, like, how to solve it. But we, we all agree that we don't like this. this. This current state of affairs, we don't like it. So, so yeah, it'll be interesting.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see how it plays out. But it, you know, the way that things are set up, it also gives you, um, this illusion of choice as well, right? Because, you know, you might see a negative story about Facebook and how they're intentionally using divisive content in order to increase engagement, in order to harvest more of your data to sell to third parties without you even really realizing it. Um, but what are you going to do, right? Okay. Well, I want to keep in touch with my friends. I'm going to go to Instagram. You know, so uh, I I think that this, again, I think your analysis is spot on. I think you're right about what the end goal should be. Um, but it's really difficult also to regulate these tech companies when they're honestly a bunch of different businesses in one, right? Is is Facebook an advertising firm? Yeah. Is Facebook, uh, is it considered um, a, a news site? You know what I'm saying? It's like so many yeah. different things in one. And the, the sheer size of it and the versatility of that platform makes it incredibly difficult to really regulate it. And one of the other issues is that you have people in Congress who literally don't know how technology works. Yeah. Like, they don't know how these platforms work. They don't know what the, the practices are. And then you watch the congressional hearings where they're asking questions to, you know, the Google CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, whoever they're, um, you know, questioning at that time. And it's just embarrassing because they're they're not equipped with the knowledge necessary to really understand the weight of the issue. Um, so yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, and I didn't even get into it just because for the sake of time, but the, just the, the, the tax avoidance that these companies are doing is just absolutely obscene. You know, that they, how, how they hide profits, how they, um, how they use kind of tax havens and things like that to, to just pay basically no taxes on like, I mean, you just, it's it there's there's so many problems with with their their sheer size and power that 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 it's almost too much to, to list and I just needed to save time essentially. But yeah, I mean again,
4: yeah.
1: We'll see. It's kind of like I didn't expect to see this happening, but it's happening, so let's let's yeah. go along for the ride.
0: Well, um one other thing that's happening is um evictions <laughs> even during this pandemic and it's it's really gotten no attention, um, especially as congressional lawmakers continue to negotiate a relief package um, where they stand with the negotiations um, is shameful in a number of different ways. But when it comes to the issue of evictions, it's particularly bad. So let's talk a little bit about that. So there's a looming eviction crisis. And based how relief package negotiations are taking place uh, among congressional lawmakers, it doesn't seem like they plan on doing much about it. Now, the CDC's eviction moratorium will expire on December 31st, which will lead to an explosion of Americans being forced out of their homes and onto the streets. And Congress is having a discussion about maybe we should extend, maybe we should extend this moratorium, but even that's not enough. So just to give you a a sense of the weight of this issue, 6.7 million adults are likely to face eviction or foreclosure in the next two months. And you see actual instances of people being evicted even now during this so-called moratorium when people are supposed to be housed in order to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. Um, but again, just let me reiterate that moratorium isn't enough. Uh, here's what the scene looked like in Brooklyn on December 11th, uh, when a tenant activist, uh, tried to, or tenant activist tried to block the, the NYPD from evicting a family from their home. Take a look.
2: You're,
4: you're you lie down in bed at night and you're sleeping, girl. Fuck you! People die on the street! Fuck you!
0: And, uh, it didn't stop there. In fact, just last night, uh, there was yet another protest and, um, New York State Assembly member Desmond Meeks was arrested for being there to witness what was going on. Um, he was, uh, filming it, documenting it. Uh, the cops were there to try to evict a mother and her children, a single mother and her children. And of course, uh, the weather is pretty cold and awful in New York right now. Um, and here's what happened when, uh, cops confronted Meeks.
3: This this is what we see. It. This is an eviction of RPD about to put a single mother and her children out on the streets. This is this is Assemblymember Damon Meeks. I'm under arrest. I'm under arrest for for coming out here and filming what's going on. Okay. I'm under arrest for what?
1: I need I need I need my I
3: need my phone. No, you're breaking my glasses. You're breaking my glasses. I'm just here as a witness. I'm here witnessing what's going on. I just came here. Okay. Okay. Don't resist.
0: I'm not I'm not resisting you my life. How are people getting evicted right now? when there is a moratorium, and when there are as many as 3,500 people dying every day from coronavirus, this pandemic is worse today than it was in the beginning of the pandemic. And in the beginning of the pandemic, I mean, at least there was some willingness for our lawmakers to take it seriously, to protect people, to ensure that people were housed, uh, to ensure that there was something being done to provide some relief through uh, robust unemployment benefits, uh, through a direct check to Americans. Uh, But that's not the case right now, clearly. And all we keep hearing about is that looming December 31st date. But again, Congress hasn't done enough. The CDC hasn't done enough. And when it comes to the more recent moratorium that was implemented by the CDC, the problem was that it was implemented and written in such a vague way that some states decided to interpret it in let's just say a way that isn't so generous to people in need. Take a look. It's important to realize that the federal moratorium that's due to end wasn't good enough to begin with. It didn't come until September. And that was months after people in places like Kansas City had been evicted and forced to the streets in the middle of a global pandemic The CDC moratorium only covers one type of eviction, and those are evictions for non-payment of rent. It leaves a lot open to local interpretation, and it puts the burden on tenants to apply for that protection. So the CDC moratorium was not good enough, but the CDC moratorium allowed to expire at the end of the month leaves hundreds of thousands, millions of families vulnerable to eviction within the first 20 days of the next year. And she's absolutely right. I mean, in in some places in this country, uh, you even have federal judges who are hearing eviction cases and siding with landlords. Um, one perfect example is Judge Patricia Kinsey from Florida, who has decided to consistently side with landlords. She sided with a lawyer for a tenant named Steve Crowley. Um, I'm sorry, she sided with a lawyer for tenant Steve Crowley's landlord, a big Canadian company that owns 19,000 rental units in North America, who'd argued that the CDC order was unconstitutional. Uh, in fact, she thought that this was um, horrible when it comes to private property. Agreeing with the landlord's lawyer, Kinsey ruled that the CDC moratorium represented an unlawful taking by the US government of landlords' private property rental income. Oh no! I mean, we can't mess with private property. But to be sure, there is an issue with mom and pop landlords who literally rely on their rental, um, you know, rental property in order to pay their own bills. And to be quite honest with you, we haven't really seen much of an effort by Congress to handle that situation either. And look, even when the pandemic um, uh, was, you know, finally taken seriously and people were housed. Um, it, because it was considered uh, an important public health measure, Uh, the system still will value profits over human lives. So for instance, take a look at this tweet by Mike Baker, where he mentions that there's been another record, more than a quarter million new coronavirus infections were identified in the United States today. This was a tweet uh, that he put out there on December 18th. Over the past month, about 5.9 million new infections have been identified. That's one out of every 56 people, In the nation now i give you that statistic because it's important to understand how this virus is just tearing through the country it continues to be a gigantic public health concern yet people are being unhoused already even before the moratorium is lifted and congress has failed as of now as we do this story uh has failed to come up with a a, a robust relief package that really addresses these issues but even a robust, foolproof moratorium isn't enough. And I want to make the case for that because all it really does is provide a temporary bandage on something that was a gushing wound even before the pandemic. Unaffordable housing, homelessness, all these issues existed before coronavirus Uh, you know, starting to tear through the country. And um, remember, the eviction moratorium isn't the same as rent cancellation or mortgage cancellation. All it does is kick the can down the road and Americans are still going to owe thousands of dollars in back rent. So for Americans who did find some protection under the CDC's moratorium, understand that once it eventually expires and we know it eventually will, their landlords will try to evict them if they are unable to pay that back rent. The portion of tenants owing back rent has roughly tripled during the pandemic, federal census surveys show. The most recent survey tracking the pandemic's impact on households identified an estimated 18% of households behind on rent payments. So what do you guys think that looks like? How bad is the problem? What does the average renter own as soon as these, um, you know, moratoriums are lifted? Well, the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia says renter households experiencing job loss because of COVID 19 currently, currently at this moment. Owe an estimated $7.2 billion in unpaid rent, or $5,400 each. But don't expect the appropriate response from our congressional lawmakers, uh, like, for instance, Republican uh, Senator Ron Johnson, who literally had the balls to stand up and give this ridiculous speech this week.
4: When I came to the Senate, we were a little over $14 trillion. Our GDP was over $15 trillion. We're actually below 100% of GDP.
3: Now, I know I'm using a lot of numbers right now, and I'm going to use more because that's part of the problem, and one of the reasons we are $27.4 trillion in debt is we only speak about need, we only talk in terms of compassion. We all have compassion. We all want to fulfill those needs. We just don't talk in numbers very often. We don't analyze the data. We don't take a look at what we did in the past and see, did it work?
0: Oh, oh, I love, love looking at the past and trying to figure out whether some of the actions taken by congressional lawmakers have worked or failed. Now, of course, there have been a lot of failures. And I'd like to point to one that involved uh, Republican Senator Ron Johnson. Uh, This is from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, a headline that says U.S. Senator Ron Johnson backs tax cuts dismisses $1 trillion uh, trillion projected increase in federal debt because they don't actually care about the debt. Do they love tax cuts? Of course they do. Do they love spending any of our resources on actually benefiting the American people, especially during a time of crisis? Of course not. And that's what that speech was really about. It was a giant middle finger to the American people who are truly suffering right now due to no fault of their own. A virus that they couldn't have predicted, a virus that has led to tens of millions of Americans losing their jobs, a virus that has led to more than 300,000 Americans dying. And Ron Johnson stands up there and pretends like he cares about the debt. It's absolutely shameful. And there's virtually no aid for independent mom and pop landlords who, again, do rely on rental property income in order to pay their own bills. And so they're still responsible for paying utilities for their buildings. They're still responsible to pay their property taxes. And some of you might think, no, landlords bad. Doesn't matter if they're corporate landlords or independent mom and pop landlords. But understand that this has created a situation in which the worst corporations are snatching up these buildings and just continuing to increase the rent. So I'll give you a perfect example. And this was written by um, David Sirota for the Daily Poster. Please read the full piece because it's fantastic. So um, at the Goldman Sachs Financial Services Conference on December 9th, Blackstone's billionaire CEO, Stephen... Schwartzman boasted that after the 2008 financial crisis, his firm was able to cash in on the mortgage crisis. At the time, the company was able to buy up foreclosed homes and convert them into rental properties, subsequently plagued by the accusations of dilapidation or excessive fees, all while it received a big financial boost from the government. And guess what? Blackstone is really excited about these independent landlords who have become desperate because they're not getting any aid from the government. They're not able to collect rental income uh, for obvious reasons. And so they're either putting their buildings on the market, which then gets snatched up by people like Schwartzman, or they're being foreclosed on. And so it's going to create a far worse situation for renters down the line. And Congress doesn't care. Congress isn't doing anything about it. As Schwartzman says, you always have winners and losers. Blackstone was a huge winner coming out of the global financial crisis, and I think something similar is going to happen. I bet he does. And you wouldn't, and by the way, wouldn't you know it? Despite the country's devastation and public health crisis, Blackstone continues to force their own tenants out on the streets. As Sirota writes, Blackstone has also been evicting residents during the pandemic and has faced a legal showdown in New York or with New York tenants. At one of the city's largest rental complexes, which it owns there, the company has been trying to exempt thousands of units from rent regulation laws. The company has reportedly even kept Manhattan units empty rather than face rent control regulations. And I've certainly seen quite a bit of that here in Los Angeles as well. And look, if Senate Democrats want to actually do something about this, and to be sure, uh, lawmakers like Senator Bernie Sanders have, they've been fighting pretty hard, but they can actually fight harder because believe it or not, they do have leverage even though, even though Republicans control the Senate. What do I mean by that? Well, keep in mind that Mitch McConnell just recently admitted that Kelly Leffler and David Perdue, who are, you know, running in the Senate runoff races in Georgia, are currently being hounded due to the lack of direct checks to Americans. Of course, this is part of the relief package negotiations, something that Mitch McConnell was not in favor of in any way at all. However, once he realized that this could hurt the chances of Leffler and Perdue getting reelected, he jumped on a call with GOP lawmakers and urged them to send a direct check to Americans. Now, that's important because we know that Republicans don't want to lose control of the Senate. And so since Democrats have that leverage, why not use it? There's also one other thing that's not getting a lot of attention. Turns out that Donald Trump uh, wants, whether you believe him or not, he's on the record claiming that he wants a more robust relief package for Americans. Here's what he said to Brian Kilmeade in the past weekend.
1: What about an aid package for the American it's, it's people? Moving along. What could you do to get the $900 billion out? Well, I Nancy want to Blosy do it. I'm McConnell. pushing it very hard. And to be honest with you, if the Democrats really wanted to do the deal, they do the deal. They should do it right now. I want to
2: see checks going for more money than they're talking about going to people.
0: Democrats should use that soundbite and they should use it aggressively and they should use that leverage against uh, the Senate GOP, which of course has served as an obstacle in getting a a robust relief package to Americans. Um, But unfortunately, we do have a number of uh, feckless, self-interested Democratic lawmakers like Senator Warner, who is one of the wealthiest members of Congress. He's a Democrat. And in regard to what progressives have been demanding, he's gotten a little salty. And here's what he said on a recent interview with MSNBC.
4: I mean, we're dealing with a Senate that is still unfortunately controlled by the Republicans. We still have Donald Trump uh, as president controlling two-thirds, in a sense, of the federal government, the executive and the Senate. And the alternative would have been to have people get kicked off of unemployment, get kicked out of their apartments, not get the kind of food assistance that's needed. Uh, the Republican deal was sitting at $500 billion.
3: And frankly, there would not even been any conversations between leadership.
0: So he sounds like he's not really interested in fighting or using any of the leverage that Senate Democrats have in demanding more for the American people. I want to reiterate, the New York Times reported that McConnell said Senators Kelly Leffler and David Perdue, who are both facing January runoffs that will determine which party controls the Senate, something very important for Republicans, right? We're getting hammered for Congress's failure to deliver more pandemic aid to struggling Americans particularly the direct payments, and that enacting the measure could help them. Mm, I would uh, dangle those Senate races right before them and, again, just flex your muscle, Democrats. Fight and do the right thing. But as I shared in a segment with you all last weekend, the truth is when you have incredibly wealthy people... Allegedly representing us in Congress, they're so far disconnected from the realities that we face on a daily basis. They just don't get it, and so we get insulted with a proposal of a one-time six hundred dollar check, or maybe no check at all. But in this case, I think if Democrats understood the leverage they had and they were willing to fight a little harder, uh, they could get something done to not only prevent people from getting evicted in a temporary period of time, but more importantly, provide actual rental assistance so people aren't kicked out of their home as soon as that moratorium is lifted. That hasn't been addressed. I don't know if it's going to be addressed, but it is a big problem that seems like no one's paying much attention to.
1: Yeah, I mean, it just added up to the myriad ways in which our political class, ruling class has just completely... um, left us in the lurch during this economic crisis fueled by the pandemic. I mean, it's, it's weird because a lot of this stuff, um, you know, obviously there's a ton of pain, um, happening right now, but it's almost like the pandemic has frozen a lot of it, you know, like has frozen things in place and it will only get much there. There's a way in which it's going to get worse once everything kind of quote unquote goes back to normal. Um, because like you said, people are going to start, collecting those checks that they're owed, Um, you know, it's going to, it's going to create all kinds of, uh, uh, of chaos, both in the, in the housing market, the commercial real estate market, all these things like are just going to be in a, in a very, very precarious place. And in just the, we, it's, it's hard to imagine what's going to happen. I mean, there's, there is such a deep and broad economic crisis that's, that's happening right now that again, like, something it's either going to like, we're either going to sort of emerge from this with some sort of big kind of new deal type thing. Um, and I'm not necessarily thinking that's going to happen right now or with this current Biden administration or whatever, but like we're the the country is really kind of at a major, major inflection point in which we're either going to, we're either going to come out of it with this big kind of 21st century new deal or uh, just, <laughs> or just kind of fall into a permanent state of, um, downward spiral, c- permanent crisis, and um, and just kind of like a mass uh, underclass that is just much bigger than than it, than it ever has been in our history. I mean, it's just, it really is wild to think about. You look at something like this and you look at just how absent it is from the chatter, the political conversation, the negotiations going on on Capitol Hill, all of those things. And, and it just, it boggles the mind. I mean, it really boggles the mind. Um, and again, yeah. I just don't yeah. know what, what is going to come out of this? I mean, there, there, it's going to create a political instability unlike we haven't seen in, in our lifetimes.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I, I know that at least in Los Angeles, you can already see um, the impact of, of what's going on. I mean, of course, we had uh, a problem with homelessness even before the pandemic, but that problem has really exploded um, during this pandemic. And I mean, when you when it comes to local lawmakers, like what have they done? Oh, let's put a porta potty underneath the bridge and that'll be good enough. No, but that's it's insane because that's actually what was tried um, back in, I think, the early 1990s. And it ended up being a massive failure because people were using the porta potties for drug trafficking and all all sorts of other crime. And it did nothing to actually, you know, help with any type of public health concern. Um, You know, during the AIDS epidemic, AIDS, HIV epidemic, there were... um, Like housing programs, because the government realized that this is a public health issue, right? And it's better to keep people housed in a clean, safe place rather than have them, you know, out on the streets, uh, possibly, you know, uh, spreading this. And but we don't have that kind of mindset right now in this country. Like things are so, like, far in like this neoliberal, profit-driven direction. That we're I mean, like we're having conversations about, OK, what more can we do to bail out these businesses? I'm not talking about small businesses like these corporations. I mean, the Federal Reserve printing money, all of that is totally fine. But when it comes to sending che- just checks, direct checks to Americans who are in need right now, they're totally nickel and diming us. Eight million more Americans fell into poverty yeah. since the last summer. That's insane.
2: Yeah, It's
0: insane. And I yeah. think more than anything guys what it what it shows me is just how the left has no power because if we did then we would be able to do something about this. Congress isn't afraid of us. They're right. not afraid of us at all, at all. And I think that's something that needs to be addressed.
1: Yeah, and anyway, ultimately um, I mean the, the presence of half a million homeless people in in the richest country in the world is is just utterly like it's one of those things that I I like when I think about it I just I it drives me absolutely crazy. And, and, and yeah, I mean, ultimately our goal should be to decommodify the housing market pretty much entirely. I mean, it, it should not be something subject to the whims of the market. It just, it just shows that the market does not, cannot satisfy housing for all. I mean, it just can't. So again, you know, decommodify the things that we need in our lives. That should be a principle that we stick to, uh, over and over again, whether it's food, housing, medical care, uh, education, all those things need to be decommodified. Sure. We can have, we can have, we can have like for shoes and stuff, we can have companies competing with each other and things like that. But for, (laughs) but for the things that we actually need in our lives, um, it just needs to be completely decommodified.
0: No, I totally agree with you. And, and, you know, when it comes to like, like rent control, for instance. I mean, it goes back to a a very familiar theme on this show. You know, you can try to regulate a privatized industry, right? But it's it's never going to be enough because with rent control in LA, this pandemic has shown how weak rent control is, because what ends up happening is, okay, these like mom and pop landlords can't, can't, they can't afford to keep paying property taxes and, you know, um, utilities and everything for these buildings uh, for their tenants. And so they're putting this stuff back on the market or they're being foreclosed on, which allows vultures um, like Schwartzman to come in and snatch them up. But understand what they do. They don't keep the rent controlled buildings. What they do is they demolish them and then they build these luxury condos or luxury apartment buildings that are overpriced and they do sit empty. And it, it it like it blows my mind like that was a big problem even before the pandemic, and now this pandemic and the inaction by our lawmakers is putting that problem on overdrive yeah. um, so we 're going to really see this housing crisis explode um, in the next year, and Congress is just not up for the challenge at all they don 't care to do anything about it and since we 're you know having a discussion about power and and what what we can do, I think it's important to bring. David Sirota in now, um, who's been discussing strategy, debating strategy about, you know, what progressives can do to win um, all week. I'm sure you're exhausted by this conversation, David, but thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So, um, look, I I, want to... I think, set some ground rules because I really want to have um, a substantive uh, discussion and not make this about any type of personalities. And so this is specifically about strategy and what we can do um, to use whatever leverage prog- uh, progressive lawmakers have in the House uh, to get things done. Um, and so there has been a proposal uh, to hold the vote for Nancy Pelosi, as Speaker of the House. And unless she agrees to... Um, Taking Medicare for all to a floor vote, then uh, progressive lawmakers should uh, avoid voting for her. Uh, and so that's a little bit of leverage that progressive lawmakers have. And there's been a big debate all week about whether or not that strategy makes a lot of sense. And so uh, David, I really appreciated your piece in um, you know the Daily Poster where you provided some uh, specific, nuanced examples of other things that uh, progressives can do in addition to uh, a Medicare for all floor vote. Um, so do you want to just quickly talk about what those options are?
3: Sure. Um, you know, I think the there, there's a lot of things that the House Democrats could try to do if they wanted to uh, and to leverage that vote uh, for uh, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, for instance, uh, they don't have to just ask for a vote on Medicare for all. They could ask for a vote on two or three or four bills uh, that are in Congress that deal with the same issue. For instance, uh, Ro Khanna has an existing bill to allow uh, states to help states do their own single payer Medicare for all programs. And if you know the history of Medicare for all in, for instance, a place like Canada, uh, you know that it started at the, uh, at there, at the provincial level. So actually passing something that empowers the states to take action uh, is historically uh, has been helpful. Uh, it engages state legislators. We don't actually know where members of Congress really are on that issue. Uh, and we have an HHS secretary or an incoming HHS secretary who has said he actually supports doing that kind of thing. So getting uh, folks on record on an issue like that, in addition to a Medicare for all floor vote, uh, is something uh, that you can ask for. You can ask uh, the Democrats uh, and Pelosi uh, and the Democratic leadership uh, to put a a, a letter together, uh, an initiative together to tell Joe Biden to use the existing executive authority that he will have to expand Medicare in the middle of this pandemic. Uh, we haven't seen any organizing around that. I mean, the the incredible thing to me, which is sort of sad, is that there's sort of this this idea this this idea out there that Joe Biden won the election, therefore that's over. So whatever Joe Biden does is is fine and can't really you know fight it or or pressure him, uh, and that we have to uh, focus only uh, for now uh, on what's going on, for instance, in the U.S. House. It sort of gives a pass to Joe Biden as opposed to saying joe biden actually will have the power at with the stroke of a pen to expand medicare if he wanted to why why is why hasn't there been any organizing around that why haven't the the house democrats uh, the democrats in congress uh, moved aggressively to to put the pressure on him to do that uh, so that's another thing the and the other the other thing that can be done right now which is directly right in the house which i know some people uh, roll their eyes at because it's uh, because it's uh, I guess, technical or wonky. I don't I don't particularly think it is, is to replace the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee with somebody right now. It's somebody who opposes Medicare for all and put in a Medicare for all supporter. Uh, And that's not a small thing. That's a huge thing. If you know the history of Medicare, Medicare itself you would know how important it is to have a Ways and Means Committee chairperson, because that's the committee that oversees the legislation. You would know how important it is uh, to have a Medicare for All supporter in that job. The New Yorker did a a longer piece about this. I think it was two or three years ago about how Ways and Means Committee chairman, uh, Wilbur uh, Wilbur Mills, uh, back in the 60s, ended up holding up Medicare Medicare, uh, singularly. Uh, four years uh, until he was pressured and convinced to move off that. So there's been th- those are some ideas and and the problem that I've had with with some of the the discussion here is that these are ideas to say, yes, a Medicare for all vote would be important, but it needs to we need to actually ask for more. In order to in order to expect to get anything, that what we have learned over and over again from Congress is that if you don't ask for a whole loaf, you probably won't get a cr- you won't get a crumb. If you ask for a crumb, you'll get nothing. So in asking for only one thing uh, that is um, important but doesn't really uh, put Nancy Pelosi necessarily in a position uh, where she really doesn't want to have to do something. If you don't ask for that, then it's not clear you're going to get much of anything. And the thing that's been disturbing is, is that even just saying that, which I I, I think is a logical, uh, earnest, honest kind of statement, even saying that has generated recriminations of, oh, people are selling out, people are corrupt, people are trying to help the Democratic establishment. And the problem is, is that we need to be able to discuss issues of tactics and strategy without uh, it devolving into if you disagree with me on strategy, or not even if you disagree with me. If you want to add something to the strategy, that must mean you are an evil, corrupt self-dealing uh, establishment hack. And that that is not helpful to anyone. It is not helpful to the movement. It is not helpful to the potential, the hopefully, the outcome of actually guaranteeing healthcare to all, an outcome that lots of us have been working for decades on.
0: Yeah, and I just, Nando, sorry, I wanted to just add one quick thing to it because, um, you know, David mentioned um, the House Ways and Means Committee. And I, I I agree with you, out of all of the different um, you know, k- kind of proposals you had in your piece. That was the one that appealed to me the most because, uh, the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee is Richie Neal, who is awful, absolutely awful and has successfully defeated, um, efforts to end surprise medical billing. He's very much in cahoots with the private healthcare industry, and getting rid of him or or shifting the power away from a corporate Democrat and and to you know an actual progressive is really important um, in that committee. I I agree with you. I don't think that's wonky at all. And it actually let's be
3: clear. I want to just make make one point about that. One additional point that is something that Nancy Pelosi could like literally do. Like she could do that today, like now, like if she woke up today and was like, I don't want Richard Neal to be the uh, chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, that could happen like right now with her essentially singularly. So that's an ask, a demand that she could actually deliver on herself. She can't even essentially, I mean, sort of for the most part, she can't even really say, well, look, I got to get this member or that member to agree to it. She is literally running for speaker. The, The job of the speaker is to appoint the chair. So that's an ask. That's actually even more singularly to Nancy Pelosi than any ask. And I, well,
1: I want to I want to ask you, David, because I've been I'm meaning to ask you something about this, because a lot of the focus has been on AOC and her whatever parliamentary kind of maneuver she decides to do on this. I I, I want to ask because on the one hand, there's this um, push to get her to uh you know, maybe withhold her vote against Pelosi um, to get these concessions. Um, while at the same time, there was just the, the news broke yesterday that there was like a secret meeting in which they kind of excluded her from uh, the, the the Energy and Commerce Committee. It's all very kind of like inside the the Capitol, and it's something that I don't understand that well. Um, and, and I just wanted to ask you, like, how much power to, can AOC, like, uh, credibly threaten Pelosi's speakership? Um, and what did you make of this kind of maneuver um, on the Energy and, and and Commerce Committee?
3: Look, I think that that the, the 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 who becomes speaker is ultimately there is a full vote of of the House and and each party uh, votes for their uh, potential speaker candidate. Typically, what happens is that the each party first has a meeting of their committee or their conference, uh, and they, they have an internal election. Frankly, it's not binding. The only binding election is the actual official House vote, but they have a non-binding uh, intra-party uh, uh, election to say, "Here's who is our speaker designate that we'll put on the floor to to um, to vote on." Uh, and so, in theory, if enough Democrats withheld uh, their vote for speaker, uh, the, for their par- own party's speaker designate, then neither party would have a majority necessary to elect a House speaker. Uh, and things can get haywire at that point. Uh, I lived in Montana as one example. I lived in Montana where this very kind of thing happened. And what ended up happening was a you had a Democratic House majority in Montana with a Republican speaker. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen here. Uh, but what I'm saying is is that things can get pretty uh, chaotic and dicey, and that is real leverage that progressives uh, in the House uh, have. And I think it's been important to underscore that that, that that leverage exists and it can be used. That has been a very important and good thing that that has been underscored today. Where it goes from there, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. I mean, there the next in line who's been angling for speaker is Hakeem Jeffries, who's a, also a conservative, corporate friendly Democrat. Uh, would you get uh, conservative Democrats actually voting for a, a quote unquote, moderate Republican House member? I put that in quotes because I'm not sure there are any moderates. I mean, we just we just don't know. Uh, but I think a game of brinksmanship is important if you're trying to extract concessions from Pelosi, especially concessions again concessions that I believe should be the absolute minimum that should be expected. A floor vote on Medicare for all, a floor vote on Roe bill about uh, uh, state Medicare for all legislation. I mean, this isn't this shouldn't even be hard. For Nancy Pelosi uh, to deliver, it isn't hard for her to deliver because because it's on the Medicare for All vote, I, I don't think I'm under, undermining the Medicare for All movement, but I think we would all agree that it is probably doomed to fail. Doesn't mean it's not important. It is important as an organizing tool, but it's already probably a predetermined outcome. So the fact that that, that hasn't, that isn't the expectation already tells us a lot about how rigged the system already is against guaranteeing health care to all Americans. And I want to bring up something else from from history about this. We know that the Democratic Party has tried to avoid uncomfortable votes on health care from 12 years ago. Uh, I was thinking about this last night. I was was remembering the history of this. 12 years ago, uh, there was a whole effort to force the Senate Democrats uh, to vote Uh, To uh, to allow a floor vote on a public health insurance option, something that's even more modest than Medicare for all. I was part of the campaign here in Colorado to pressure my Democratic senator to use his power because every senator had the power to call for an open floor vote on a public option uh, at the end of the debate on the uh, Affordable Care Act, and not one Democrat stood up to even call for a vote. Now, there was a strategic argument there. The argument was that if we allow for amendments on this bill, it will allow the Republicans to offer amendments, and if the bill gets changed, it will go back to the House, and and the Affordable Care Act itself, the whole bill may end up getting taken down. I didn't agree with that strategy. I absolutely didn't agree with that strategy. I I thought that argument was wrong. However, and this is an important point the people who were making that argument I didn't think that uh people in the labor movement I didn't think that uh bernie sanders uh I didn't think that progressive Democrats who ultimately essentially uh, uh accepted that strategy I didn't think they were sellouts I didn't accuse them uh you know of, of of not uh being on the same page it got you know it got heated it got heated but you know it it, it was like you know, good faith allies can disagree tactically on uh, on good faith efforts to try to achieve uh, a goal, I think. But I also think at the same time that that back then the Democrats created the the situation uh, by which uh, it was harder to even get a vote. In other words, it wasn't it wasn't coincidental that just getting an open floor vote in the Senate on a public option was considered controversial or or potentially strategically dangerous, that was in a sense an engineered situation to try to prevent a vote. So all of that goes back to the idea that while a vote at one level uh, on any of these issues should be an easy ask, there is a clear pattern, a history of the Democratic Party not even wanting to hold an open vote on these issues. And I think it's because ultimately they don't want to get crosswise with a very powerful industry, the healthcare industry.
2: hmm
0: yeah I mean, okay, so let's talk about um a floor vote actually happening, right? Um, somehow miraculously aoc and and the rest of uh, the progressive lawmakers in the House are able to use this leverage against Pelosi to get her to agree to a house vote a floor vote in the House. Um, and, you know, I think everyone agrees uh, that it's unlikely to pass, um, you know, the Senate. So the argument is, well, the, the floor vote is important, even if it's not going to pass in the Senate, because at least in the House, we'll know which Democrats are real about wanting to pass Medicare for all. But I mean, if I were a, a slimy, sketchy Democrat who wanted to pretend that I liked Medicare for all and would vote for it, if I know it's going to fail in the Senate, yeah, it's perfect cover. Like I voted for Medicare for all and it was the Senate that, you know, uh, destroyed our opportunity here. Um, I just feel like it it's not going to play out the way that um, some of the fans of this strategy are hoping for, right? I just feel like this isn't actually yeah, going to reveal I mean, I think, much. I, I,
3: I guess I agree with you, but I would also say, I don't think there, I, I don't see a big downside to it. I think that mm-hmm. you know. I think that okay. Let's imagine a vote happens. Uh, all the co-sponsors vote for it. It doesn't pass the House. Uh, it it has it has fired up people, which is good. Uh, getting people on record actually casting a vote for it actually good. Even if some of those votes are fraudulent, because, you know, the idea being fraudulent, like if and when a Medicare for all vote comes up where it actually, we really think it has a chance to pass. It's part of a larger legislative strategy. Some of those people, you know, beg off and actually flip their votes. It's good to have them on record right now. All of that is good. I think the, 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 <laughs> the issue we're having is that to hold up this one tactic as a litmus test uh, for whether you support the cause, of, whether you, the act, a, an activist, activist groups, advocacy groups, whether this tactic alone is the holy grail—that's actually w- what we're talking about here, which is a nuanced point and an important point to unpack. I reject the idea that that this one tactic is the silver bullet to solving healthcare in America. I agree that the tactic is important and helpful. But to hold it up as the one holy grail and to further say this is the only tactic that matters and that all the other work that's going on, uh, all the state efforts, uh, all the uh, the effort to potentially get rid of uh, a a current chairperson who's in the power position to actually block this bill. Everything else is not important. The only thing that's important is this tactic, I think, sets up the movement uh, to fail. I think that's the because we know the vote itself will probably fail. So I think at a tactical level, I don't have I'm I'm a supporter of the idea that there should be a floor vote. I am not a supporter of the idea that the floor vote is the only thing that matters. And everyone else who's doing who's working on this in all sorts of different ways. Everyone else has no value. Everyone else is a sellout and a corporate uh, hack. Like I don't. I That's what's the problem here. We have to be yeah. able to, to walk and chew gum at the same time. We have to be able to be civil with one another if we agree that we're all trying to actually achieve the same thing. I can disagree I'm- with you on a tactic. You can tell me, you know, you th- you, here's why you think the floor vote is, actually is a, 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 the holy grail but we can have that conversation without you saying well this means if you disagree with me that you're actually working for the health insurance companies uh, you're actually working for big pharma and you actually want to uh, you know uh, torpedo this entire movement that you've been working on for 25 years and it's not me know, David, not everybody it's it's a, it's an absurd yeah. and it's and, and I want to I want to just say one other thing it is also counterproductive in a bigger way
0: I know David but like I, I I'm sorry I keep interrupting you now, though, but let me just let me just say um I think the mistake that you're making, and let me also be clear on something. I think there are people engaged in this debate um, who are, who agree with the tactic, who agree with the strategy there, and they are coming at this um, in an honest, sincere way. Um, you know, and, and I, I respect that. And I, I love that they're engaging in this discussion. And I think this debate is really important. Um, just right now, as we're doing the show, um, I, I, I'm going to break my own ground rule. Jimmy Dore, like, keeps accusing me of, like, taking money from NATO. Like, he's insane. He's literally, out of his mind, batshit crazy. Like, accusing people of things that you have no evidence of. I personally took $20 million from Jeffrey Katzenberg simply because I didn't immediately fall in line and say, like, I this is fantastic. I don't even want to discuss it. 100% support it. We can't have a discussion about anything else. We need to do this and let's move on. Like, that's that's not a good faith person.
2: Well, I think there I, are big people that, who
0: agree with him right and I, I'm interested in having a discussion with them not interested in having a discussion with someone who has no evidence for anything and goes around you know slinging mud and and you know causing these ridiculous divisions um within you know a, a group of people who overwhelmingly agree with one another on these issues right and I, and
3: I think there's not a bigger I think there's something bigger than just any one personality I think right. it's that I, I think it's that you have to be able to honestly assess who who is on your side and who isn't. And frankly, I don't think it's that hard to figure out who's on your side and who isn't. In other words, it, it's pretty clear who the corporate Democrats are. It's pretty clear who the, uh, the progressive supporters of Medicare for all are. By the way, a floor vote would help uh, make that as clear as possible, I think, or at least more clear in the U.S. House of Representatives itself. But I think that you know, demonizing people that we all know are actually on the side of this fight, demonizing them because they may disagree or have uh, different views about what the best strategy is, that is deeply counterproductive. And let's use AOC as an example. Okay. AOC, if AOC does not, and the squad does does not use their leverage to force a floor vote or try to force a floor vote, I'm not prepared to say that means that they don't believe in Medicare for all or that they're sellouts. I I just I'm not prepared to the, the evidence is overwhelmingly against that, that they may disagree with the tactic and I may disagree with them for their position on the tactic on not forcing a Medicare for all vote. But I'm not willing to say, nor do I believe that that means that they don't want to pass Medicare for All or aren't willing to fight as hard as possible for Medicare for All. It could just be that they have a different theory of change. And when you take a strategic uh, 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 difference and try to broaden it to be uh, a a difference of values, if you don't have evidence that that is is, uh, uh, rational and logical to do that, what you're doing is you're undermining people who are really on your side uh, and who are trying to do the right thing. I mean, if you tell me, I'll, I'll, but I'll, I'll say this, if you tell me, look, AOC and the squad are not going to force a vote, uh, and I just found out that their super PAC uh, got a hu- you know, $500,000 from Aetna, then you can say, hey, listen, uh, this, this looks like they sold out, right? But if you tell me they're not going to use their leverage to force a floor vote on Medicare for All, because they want it, they actually have an idea to, for instance, use their leverage to change—I don't know—House paygo rules, right? The the budget rules that make it impossible to actually pass uh, Medicare for all uh, in a in a real way. If you tell me that that means that they're selling out to the insurance companies, and you don't have evidence, there's no proof, there's no rational, uh, 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 you know, documented proof that that they're acting in a nefarious way, then. Asserting that they're acting in a corrupt, nefarious way is both not really credible and also deeply destructive to the larger movement. And again... This is a movement that has been going on for a very long time. Now, I know there are critics out there who say, well, look, you know, anybody who's been working on this for a long time, it means that you don't know what you're doing because we haven't passed Medicare for all by now. So all the work you've been doing for the last 20, 30 years, actually, it proves that you're pathetic and a failure because you haven't passed Medicare for all yet. Well, that writes out the history of of how powerful the interests really are. That is. That writes out the history of every social movement that takes uh, decades uh, to to achieve its goals. And so I my point is moving forward is to is to try to understand who our enemies are, who they are, who our allies are, and understand that among allies, there are going to be disagreements and they're going to be vehement disagreements, but personalizing them. And using them to assert corruption, uh, using them to assert uh, a lack of moral principle when you're having a tactical a uh, dis- uh, dispute, uh, that is deeply destructive to the entire movement for the actual issue and the actual outcome.
1: Yeah, and the other thing that's the, the other thing that's kind of been on my mind about this whole debate is the is the sort of the sort of over focus on just internal parliamentary maneuvers. I mean, you mentioned the passage of Medicare in the 1960s. Um, and when any when any big, broad policy like this has been passed in, in the past, a bunch of like what we would call quote-unquote corporate sellouts voted for them, you know what I mean? And it was just because they were forced to by a sort of shift in the balance of power from forces outside of the halls of Congress. I mean, you know, Lyndon Johnson has a very... Mixed record as a senator, um, in 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 the sort of things he believed and the things he supported and the things he he crushed uh, often when he was a senator. And then he oversaw the passage of 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 Medicare. So um, the purity of Lyndon Johnson was 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 never really uh, an important debate to be having. I mean, we everyone knows that he was kind of a power hungry. a person who was willing to do anything, uh, for power and w- we willing to compromise on anything for, for that. So, but it was the, it was the shift in conditions, um, that came after decades of organizing a powerful labor movement, a civil rights movement, uh, things like that, that, that were able to, um, shift the, 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 the political terrain outside of the halls of Congress. So that a bunch of these, what we would call corporate sellouts, um, ended up Actually voting for it, so uh, it just it just strikes me as like a, a an over focus on this as some sort of tactic that's going to um, essentially be kind of like a game genie cheat code in the Nintendo game, you know, and skip three or four levels. Um, <laughs> and right, there is no cheat
3: code. There's no up. There is down no cheat code. Yeah. no, it doesn't work yeah. in politics like that. And I agree with you, but I I would also say that's why there's two things happening here at once, which is. The value of a Medicare for all vote is not that you're going to actually create a Medicare for all program because that, if you believe that, and I want to be clear, it's not that you're going to pass a Medicare for all program now. Obviously, the goal is to pass a Medicare for all program generally, but the value of a vote right now is not that you're going to actually tomorrow legislate Medicare for all. I think we can all be honest and agree that that's probably not going to happen. Uh, because we don't live in a political system where the tail can wag the dog, right? The tail being like you you have to do the the organizing work and the engagement over many, many, many years to challenge power to actually, that's what history teaches, to actually deliver on a policy this big. And that Delivering on a policy this big uh that challenges power in this way is not something you just sort of get through with with just exactly the right worded bill if you haven't done all the other things but I do think the value of the of the of a vote is for those other things right so to have a vote is part, one of many different things that can be done to help add fuel to the larger movement, and so that's why it's important, but it's also why if you hold it up as the holy grail you're being dishonest right it can be important and also not be the holy grail pushing for a vote right now can be an important thing to do right now but saying that it's the only thing we need to do and then when and, and then when it fails being then being crushed and saying well it failed so i guess we're done that that if you if you frame it that way that's not helpful to the long term cause it is one step an important step, but it is one step.
0: Okay, perfect. So that, that leads to the question that I have because I don't know, maybe I'm missing it because I think a floor vote is fine. And I think that the you know uh, every argument I heard about how it can be quote unquote damaging um, isn't strong enough to convince me that we shouldn't have a floor vote. Um, but my question has been, okay, then what comes after that? So if it fails... What do we do? Like, what is the plan? Because, you know, as as Ryan Grimm mentioned um, in a, th- a thread, uh, he writes, consider the fact that the left basically has no power right now. You can't maneuver your way out of powerlessness. There's no clever trick that abolitionists could have pulled in 1820 that would have ended slavery, even though there were a few members of Congress against slavery. And so I think that's a really important point because, all right, let's have the floor vote. And the idea is the lawmakers, the Democratic lawmakers who are not on board for Medicare for all, there should be consequences. So what are the consequences? The left has no power. Like, let's be real about where we are. We don't have power. We're not organized. Right. We're not pla- We're not even planning. We're not even having that discussion right now. No one is having that discussion. Well,
3: look, this is, look, um, this, this is why I say the Ro Khanna bill. Is so important. I mean, I, you know, there, and I, you really have to play this out for a sec. The, the bill to empower, to further empower the HHS secretary to provide waivers to states to create their own Medicare for all systems, basically vastly expanding Medicaid to cover everybody. You need a lot of waivers. It's, it's fairly esoteric and complex, but it's important. The reason why that is so politically important, separating out the, the details is because it would then empower hundreds, if not thousands, of state legislators to become deeply engaged on the issue because it would give them agency to actually take action on this in states across the country. If you think like a movement person, rather than uh, only a media spectacle, if you're thinking about the power dynamics here, giving state legislators, and this is just one example, Giving state legislators the power to say, hey, if you pass a Medicare for all or a single payer program in your state, you will get those necessary waivers to actually fund what you are doing. You have now uh, empowered those legislators to become community and state advocates for this policy in a very real way. Not rhetorical advocates, but actually legislative advocates, advocates who can go to their constituents and say, I am trying to do this right now that would create this here in our community. So when you ask the question, what comes next, that's exactly the right question to be asking. And that's why when I wrote my article about all the things that can be done, that's what was on my mind, right? One thing. Empower state legislators essentially to go out and be campaigners for this in their own communities in a concrete way. That is a that is a, a, a policy point, and it's also a political point. The primarying point that you brought up. Um, a Medicare for All floor vote would clarify, or or at least better clarify who is willing to align themselves as publicly as possible, who in the House who is willing to align themselves as publicly as possible uh, with Medicare for All uh, it would give us more detail than just the co-sponsor list. And in theory, you could then take that vote, that roll call vote, figure out who represents deeply blue districts and wh- how many people who are voting against Medicare for All are actually wildly out of step with the political Uh, situation in their district. And that can be useful to then, in theory, try to target primaries properly. So again, that's useful. But the issue is is that you have to be thinking about those steps before you ask uh, or plan around a particular tactic. Now, there's no central place where all these tactics are put together. And that's why I think, you know, there is value in in trying to push for a vote right now in that it is, it, it is in some ways a spontaneous uh, moment here. And I think that's, a, you don't want to tamp down that energy. That energy is really important, but it is also important to have it be energy uh, in service of a larger plan because what you don't want to happen is that that vote happens, it gets voted down and then everyone says, ah, I told you, see, the system is corrupt, we should all just, you know, Uh, uh, disengage, disinvest from the entire system, and it ends up being a demoralizing event. And it ends up being a moment of of, of really nihilism. Now, look, I'm the first person to tell you that the system is corrupt. I report on corruption literally every single day. But what you don't want to have happen is that this ends up being even more fuel for a nihilistic politics that says it's actually worthwhile for everybody to simply disengage because nothing, nothing can ever fundamentally change.
1: I want to ask you, um, just sort of moving on from the Medicare for all aspect of it, but one thing that I was thinking a lot about is that it strikes me that if if the, to the small extent that the left has power within Congress, if it can credibly knock down Pelosi from the speakership, even if she's replaced by some awful person like Hakeem Jeffries, like it strikes me as that that in and of itself is a is a, almost like a worthwhile muscle flex to be like we took down pelosi like symbolically she is a she's a lot i mean she's she's been around forever she's like one of the most powerful Democrats in the country Um, beyond like whether she where she fits on an on a sort of theoretical political spectrum vis-a-vis someone like Hakeem Jeffries mm-hmm. her actual power is much larger than Hakeem Jeffries she's just got much more prestige uh, much better fundraising uh, skills and experience much more credibility within the media blah 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 a million things that it strikes me that just ju- just bringing down Pelosi just knocking her off that that perch if that is Really in the co- like like on the and 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 they do have the power to do that. I almost would rather that than a Medicare for all floor vote as a sort of symbolic victory as like a sort of threat that you know we can do this. We can we can we can knock out po- Nancy Pelosi. You know is is vulnerable to our um, to our power. I mean that strikes me as in a way a much more I don't know scary threat to someone who would be in that position.
3: Uh, I, I mean I I, I I absolutely agree that taking out Nancy Pelosi would be a huge uh, achievement uh even if her successor uh is sort of a caretaker placeholder continuity with with her own politics yes these 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 that kind of a victory would 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 be an earthquake uh look i yeah. was part of an earthquake like that um, in a sense, in 2006, when I worked for Ned Lamont. He didn't even win uh, the general election in Connecticut, but he won the primary. And I would argue that that primary victory changed the Democratic Party's entire posture on the Iraq War. Uh, Also, and in changing the Democratic Party's entire posture on the Iraq War, helped the Democrats win uh, the Congress in 2006 and helped the Democrats win the presidency in 2008. So, yes, showing that you can actually defeat somebody uh, can uh, certainly uh, create the kind of deterrent and 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 sort of constructive political fear among, in the establishment to force change. I think that's absolutely true. And look, I think that they that Alex Morse tried to do that uh, with Richie Neal in in the primary against uh, Richie Neal. Uh, it 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 wasn't successful, uh, but it doesn't mean it wasn't worthwhile. I mean, if you asked me to map out how are you, how are you actually going to change the politics of the United States House of Representatives, you know. My view is that you have to primary enough people and successfully primary enough people uh, to make it clear that if uh, Democratic lawmakers, especially from uh, very Democratic districts, continue uh, voting against uh, working people in this country, uh, they'll face political consequences. You you have to get critical mass of enough of those on a consistent enough basis to actually create a different culture, a culture in which the uh, Democratic elected officials uh, have to fear uh, selling out uh, regular people—that culture obviously doesn't exist yet in the U.S. House. I don't know if it ever will. Uh, and I think, but I do think that the that that the 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 squad and the younger members of Congress, the 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 freshman members of Congress coming in, uh, some of them who defeated Democratic incumbents—I think that's very very helpful uh, to changing that culture uh, in the House. The Senate's a whole other problem. Uh, uh, there has not been uh, a successful. Uh, progressive primary, uh, uh, whether an open seat or or, or, or uh, an incumbent uh, primary, to uh, defeat a Democratic senator. I mean, that just, it just hasn't happened. I can't, I can't name one. I mean, and, and I would argue that in 2020, uh, the Democratic Party machine uh, actually came to its, in the Senate, came to its pinnacle of power in actually preventing any real uh, progressive uh, other than maybe um, uh, Raphael Warnock in in Georgia, uh, from being the Democratic nominee in a Senate primary, that if you look across each individual Senate race, the Democratic Party machine in Washington was able to handpick its candidate and prevent an insurgent progressive candidate from from even becoming the Democratic Senate nominee. So so the, the Senate's a whole other problem.
1: Yeah. The Senate is a, a problem in many, 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 yeah. many ways. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah.
0: Well, yeah. I don't know. Well,
1: Anna, um, do you have anything? Yeah.
0: Yeah, Sorry. I actually wanted to um, invite our producer, Kale because I know he had a, a question that he um, wanted to ask if I understood his text correctly. Hey, Kale.
4: Hey, guys. Hey, David. Good to see hey, you. There. Um, no, less of a question, more of just something I wanted to contribute to the conversation and maybe see where it goes, because... Something that's left out of a lot of this, when we're talking about expanding healthcare, whether it's the, you know, the reforms of let's uh, expand existing coverage, let's expand Medicaid or Medicare, uh, or whether it's you know moving to single payer, I think it's important that we look back to the history of how other countries on the world actually got single payer, because, you know, in some ways, the American experience through this is is in line with these other countries, and in other ways it's not. Um, in large part, most of these other countries did it because they had a massive labor movement, and they had a labor party that either was the one that implemented the policy, or was the one that, because of their existence, put enough pressure on the more liberal or conservative political parties to to go along with that, that it was through the threat of, of labor, of organized labor, of basically, uh, you know, the... We will shut down the economy, we will harm profits, profit rates, if you don't guarantee healthcare to our citizens. And so, you know, one thing, one little thing I would quibble with, David, that you said a moment ago, um, with there is no one central place where people are, you know, where the the Medicare for all push is happening. It's true in some sense, but there is a coalition that has been in existence for, you know, for a while now of various progressive groups of NNU, PNHP, Healthcare Now, DSA, and others, and they've, they want a floor vote, but their strategy, different than what this whole debate's been about, was we go into these, these districts where you have politicians that are opposed to Medicare for all, and you ask the, the politician, will you sign on to Medicare for all? When they say no, you then canvass their district until the constituents in that district demand that their politician end up acting on this. And in some ways, it's a crude substitute for what the history shows us, which is that it takes a labor movement, it takes the threat of profitability in order to get this. But it it might still be the case in in America that we will not have Medicare for all unless we have strike action from various important unions. That might be the reality, but we don't know that yet. Um, But it seems like no matter what we do, the strategy going forward has to involve some kind of uh, building of class capacity, that whether it's, you know, these reforms to expanding healthcare have to in some way lead to our, cons- our uh, base of, of people that are on our side, working people, and kind of a broader constituency of, of some middle class people, that they have to be able to accumulate power through this process, they have greater autonomy to fight more, you know, in the off hours when they're not at work, or... Uh, uh, unions don't have to bargain as uh, have to be in such a um, precarious bargaining position with their employers so that they can then uh, demand more, uh, whether it's through healthcare or other, you know, on other fronts, as well as wages and uh, and working conditions. But it seems like all of that has largely been lost so far in the debate that has been happening for the last week or so that like it's mostly been about, what do you think? What do you believe? How do you feel? Uh, what's in the minds of someone else? And not like, what are the actual social forces necessary to actually carry this fight forward? Whether it's, you know, in one fell swoop or whether it's, you know, chipping away at, at this process.
3: Well, I, you know, I... I did, Sorry to throw of, so much on you. Yeah, there's a lot to
4: <laughs> unpack there. I mean,
3: I I would say that, um, you know, ultimately... The political system responds to the pressure brought to bear on it. And right now, the pressure that's brought to bear on it uh, is mostly corporate pressure, uh, mostly corporate influence. Uh, the uh, organized labor, uh, the, the proverbial left, if you will, has such little power uh, in comparison to the power of of essentially uh, uh, corporatist politics. So essentially what we're really talking, the the inability to pass Medicare for All, even though polls show that that Americans, if you ask them, say they support government-guaranteed health care the inability to actually get Congress to respond is a reflection on the lack of organized power uh, on the left that exists. And so anything you can do to strengthen uh, that power will ultimately, in theory, help you better able to achieve something like Medicare for all, uh, in the Congress. But the unfortunate thing is, is that, um, you know, a lot of people want easy solutions and I get it. People are impatient and, and, and progress takes a long time. It's unglamorous. It's a slog. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's not something, um, spectacular. Uh, it, it just takes years and years of, 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 of work, you know, I mean, electing a city council person, electing a state legislator uh, you know, these, these things are not uh, uh, super high profile, but they're important because those, you know, city councilor becomes the next Congress person who becomes the next Senator who becomes the next, you know, president, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that, that, you know, we're encouraged in this culture to want instant gratification and think that there are these, you know, cheat codes, if you will. I like that metaphor that there are these cheat Hmm. codes to just make this all go faster, but, but our history, and it's not just our history, it's human history. I mean, literally like human history has taught that that's typically not the way things work. Uh, and you know, I wish I had a better answer to that. I I don't have a better answer to that. Uh, I, I do think though that the current economic crisis is probably going to accelerate the potential for change. Uh, and that's both, uh, I mean, I'm not rooting for the economic crisis. Obviously, it's awful. So it's, it's a horrible thing. Uh, but I think it, it offers a potential for opportunity, but also a potential for peril. And I wrote my second book basically about this. It was called The Uprising. And the premise of the book was basically if the left, the, essentially the left and right are having a competition for who can best channel the right righteous an understandable outrage of the population at a political system that is owned by big money. Uh, and and I think we're, we've been in that since I wrote the book and now it's, it's really culminating now. And that if the left cannot put forward, and the left by, by that, I mean, not just the, the, the activist left, I mean, the, lef, the left of center of politics, even including uh, parts of the Democratic Party, cannot offer up, refuses to offer up a program that will actually deliver material gains for people then the right will opportunistically purport to put up such a program in order to gain power for itself. I think that's what happened with Donald Trump. I think that's what will happen with the next Donald Trump, who could be even more dangerous if we have four years of Joe Biden uh, uh, essentially making sure that nothing fundamentally changes. Those are his words. So I think we are at a, a an incredibly important moment right now uh, that will determine potentially uh, the next uh, many decades of our politics in ways that could be either exciting and positive or uh, terrifying and deeply destructive.
0: Well David, thank you for taking the time um, to come on our show after doing so many other shows all week talking about the same issue my pleasure, um, my pleasure. yeah yeah I really appreciate the conversation. it is an important conversation to have and um, I think the debate is healthy um, as long as uh, those engaging in the debate are you know doing so in good faith well, I forgot um, to tell
3: you I forgot to tell you I'm doing this interview from I'm sitting on top of a giant pile of gold coin. <laughs> Uh, I'm yeah, you that's my job. i uh, shilling <laughs> for the establishment. I've got a lobbying.
4: Yeah. Uh,
1: the problem is, it's my back support is, is no, no good. I got to build an ergonomic chair on top of them. And, I'll,
4: uh, I'll it, let I'll yeah. let Boscar know that he's got to, he's got to, you know, talk to Bezos again. And yeah, no, yeah, It's we get accused I'll, of Soros.
0: I'll share my NATO money. I'll share my NATO. <laughs> <money>. oh, okay, <laughs> good. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> amazing. Thank
4: you
3: for and having you made- I really appreciate it. Have Thanks a good weekend.
0: Okay, take care. You All right, too. later. Bye. Man.
4: All
3: right.
0: David Sirota is, he's just a fantastic reporter. Um, he's a fantastic person. And yeah, uh, the uh, like attacks on him right now and others, it's right, just. Hilarious. It's, yeah. And be, and there's it's few really people
1: sad. in America who have done better work than Sirota over like the past totally. three, five years.
0: 100%. Yeah. Yeah. 100%.
4: No, we are, we, so he has the the daily poster, but Jacobin also uh, republishes yeah. all of his articles. So if you're, you know, if you have a preference for Jacobin, which, you know, I might, I, I might want to read it on Jacobin. I think you should too. You should read it there. You should read it wherever you can. You should read Sirota because he's always, he's always on point and even even if i disagree with him sometimes i find him extremely clarifying of the things yeah. that i don't fully understand yet so
1: well you know he's he 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 kind of serves a purpose for me so similar to like someone like Ryan Grimm in that they're you know we may have like ideological kind of differences or whatever but they do have their fingers in in power some in some way like they have more access to um, people in power than than you or I do, Kale. <laughs> you know, we're not talking to members of Congress ever. Uh, we're not talking Again, to people. Speak for yourself, in,
4: Mando. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. You got AOC's number. <laughs> you text her there. Um, uh, and know, um, yeah. so <laughs> so they yeah, so they, they they kind of serve that bridge for me, you know, like where they, they, they do you know their their sort of commitments are beyond reproach, but they and they also do have are speaking to people who are making decisions every day about this kind of stuff? So I find it to be useful to speak to them and hear them out. Yeah,
2: yeah, for sure.
4: Um, well, we got That's like a question. Yeah, we got a couple yeah. minutes. People send us some super chat questions. There's a, there's some already that I'll uh, pull up, but yeah, please send us more questions. Um, this is the last show that we're doing of the year. We'll be back in yeah. 2020. Uh, 2021. That's right. 20. Oh, fucking hell. Yeah, no, it's, it's, just, it's just 2020. It's just part Forever. two. <laughs> yeah, Groundhog
1: 2020. Yeah, Groundhog Day. Seriously.
4: Yeah. Um, no, but uh, we'll be back next year. Of course, it's going to be bigger, better, badder than ever. <laughs> um, but uh, in the meantime, um, just a couple of super chests. Leroy earlier had said great breakdown of the tech companies. Uh, the book "Break Him Up" by Zephyr Teachout is worth reading. Um, so I'll just shout that out. Zephyr Teachout, it's very good. Um, yeah. That Indian dude was asking us to cover the Indian farmer strike. We did that last week. You should watch Nando's. I want to uh,
1: please, please tell me that that's the screen name and not just you saying like some Indian dude. <laughs> it it is
4: <it, laughs> shit. Yeah. No, it is the screen name. <laughs> um yeah that I didn't fucking just... indian dude who was there to eat,
1: <laughs> yapping away again <laughs>
4: you can it's when you replay the live chat it's there i promise i didn't just okay. botch someone's name um okay. <laughs> uh, we covered the indian farmer strike yeah no last yeah. week it was a very good segment um people should watch that um okay let's see uh okay so eclectic oh here now they now they're coming um now they're coming in baby okay um so i love david but isn't a pandemic with millions of new people unemployed homeless uh and and in, and don't have food security the time not to be patient to bring people together with a general strike while also building a movement um but no one's having
0: to- a discussion about a general strike like literally right. no one's talking about that like that's the problem right so the floor vote is fine Um, I I also don't appreciate um, the amount of dishonesty that's taking place where people have addressed the issue, have, uh, like David Sorota, agreed that uh, a floor vote could be important, uh, but want a more robust discussion about what follows Medicare for all, like failing to pass. Right. So but you're not even allowed to have that conversation without, you know. I mean, some of it is like right wingers that have like co-opted this nonsense on social media. Part of it is people who um, are buying into whatever narrative, um, you know, certain bad faith actors are putting out there in regard to this. But serious people actually want a solution and want to know, okay, what do we do to to, to leverage, you know, uh, whatever power progressives have um, in the House? What do we do after it fails? What kind of organizing is taking place? But from everything I've seen, every debate that's taken place um, on this very issue, it just centers on should we do the floor vote or not? And that's it. Okay, all right, great. We're, we're here. We're, let's do the floor vote, right? Let's snap our fingers and somehow the floor vote happens. What happens after that? It's not going to pass Congress. So, what happens after that? Because here's one other thing I'm going to say all of us with our YouTube shows, I know we all think we're super influential. We're not. We're not we're up against the private healthcare industry. We're up against corporate media. We just saw how easily it was to bury Bernie Sanders in the primary with the corporate media narrative. Okay, it happened in 2016. It happened in 2020 as well. And so we need to be real about where we are with our power. And we need to like, I just be honest with ourselves. OK, TYT is a gigantic company like and when I mean company, I mean like it's watched by a lot of people, but millions of people, right? Millions of views every day. It doesn't matter. We're still not influential enough to overwhelm the corporate media um, narrative. So if the plan is, OK, they're going to have the floor vote, it's going to fail, and then we're going to say mean things about lawmakers on our YouTube shows I'm sorry, that's not a strategy. It's just not a strategy. People can go ahead and get upset about the truth, but that is the truth. So what is the plan? What are we doing to empower people to organize? What are we doing to encourage people to engage in a a general strike? What are we doing to challenge capital? Nothing, nothing. I mean, and, and what I'm, I'm sure that there's some organizing taking place, but it's not something that's being discussed in the context of this debate. And when you have someone who's advocating for this floor vote refer to DSA as, you know, DSA dickheads who aren't doing anything, I think that's a problem. Because the fact of the matter is, I mean, especially in New York, DSA has done some pretty incredible things with local races. And to minimize the organizing that they've been engaged in, I think just shows where, you know, the priorities are for some of the people who are engaging in this in this debate from a place of bad faith from a place of narcissism and ego and no, 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 it's my way and screw all the hard work that everyone else has been doing in trying to get victories uh, on healthcare and a whole host of other issues that, you know, we want victories on, but there are no shortcuts.
1: Um, Yeah. And for for the purposes of the question about the general strike, I mean, it's just like, Yes, in theory, you know, but like the, the state of the labor movement in, in the United States is, is is such that like, you know, if we can get this, if we can get the Amazon factory in Alabama, well, we should we should like throw a huge party. You know what I mean? Like it's we're, we're looking for we're looking for a reversal of trends that have been going on for decades um, here and that have been continuing. We have not been able to reverse. I mean, we've seen. Some militancy coming out of the, um, you know, the teacher strikes, uh, especially in some red states uh, in last year. Uh, we've seen some militancy coming from the flight attendants union and stuff and the nurses and things like that. But it's it's just the seeds of something. It's not it, it has not translated into um, a reversal of the very real trends that have been that have been just hammering the labor movement since basically the 1970s. Um so that I mean, we just got to stop the bleed. Like, we got to turn it around first, and 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 get get some concrete victories, get some victories, and then we can start talking about the much bigger thing. I I I find I don't know, but you, Kale, you you're you know more about this stuff than I do. I mean, the sort of the sort of victories that we've seen in New York um, this week, uh, again, just completely absent the conversation because we're all we're all doing mental masturbation around this totally, this hundred percent, this debate, right.
4: Um, I like, kind of
0: regret not doing my decode on that because um, I think that would have fit nicely with the, you know, the discussion that we just had with David. But um, now's a good time maybe to, you know, mention it. Yeah, um, tell them
1: what, what, uh, what, what happened.
4: Oh, you're talking about service sector workers? Yes. Um, yeah, no. Um, well, there's two things happening in New York right now. Part of it is um, people are asking me to uh, mention organizations that are in the MRA coalition. Sorry, I'm getting distracted, but the M4A Coalition, Healthcare Now, PNHP, uh, NNU, DSA, uh, I think I missed earlier the labor campaign for single payer, Um, what Mark Dudzik and others have done in that organization is phenomenal, and, like, if I, you know... I would just say, like, that's where the action is right now. That, like, it's the not sexy, it's the really hard, down-and-dirty work of trying to get unions on board and union organizers on board with single-payer. Um, and, you know, my hat's off a million times over to, to Mark Dudzik. But um, in New York, uh, there's a couple things happening. Um, the On the healthcare front, there are teacher or not teachers, there are nurses— that do not have the right amount of equipment and PPE and, uh, resources they need to actually carry out their job. And so they have been, uh, basically striking throughout New York saying, uh, we need those resources and we cannot properly do our job without them. Again, this is, this is how you get the goods. It's like, these are, when you're dealing with Uh, whether it's for-profit institutions or whether you're dealing with public sector institutions, uh, you have to stop one of two things. You have to stop the flow of profits or you have to stop other people's ability to continue making profits. So kind of a general public uh, disturbance. And uh, that's, you know, in... um, I'm trying to remember his name. There's there's a a great old Marxist who who would say that vulgar Marxism explains like 90% of everything. Hundred um, percent.
1: Yeah, hundred percent.
4: It's like it, I might not be. This is not like a blanket. It covers every single instance, but like most of the time, we, we yes. just talked about this yesterday with doubt. RBK. Like, yeah, it comes down to labor struggles. It comes down to like because capitalism is built on profits, accumulating profits. Like you have to hit them at the point of making those profits, and working yeah. people are the people who are in that position to do that. Um, yeah. so the thing about, uh, it, it, it sounds does boring
1: and repetitive to make that point over and over again, but it's just so easy to get just dis- because it's the hardest thing to do. It becomes easy to get distracted and try other things. Right. But it, all the other stuff doesn't just doesn't work without it. I mean, all that stuff is on top of that, you know, and, and, you know, it's funny, like to think back on the civil rights movement, um, and the thing that get, the things that get remembered are things outside of that particular realm. Right. But really, those the things that we remember were just kind of like the sprinkling on top of 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 pretty militant labor struggles at threatening profits and capital.
4: We forget that, like the people who organized the civil rights movement, which took decades, were labor leaders. (laughs) Like, yes, like this was an extension of the labor movement to an extent, like. Obviously, it's something distinct, and that's what we call the civil rights movement. And that
1: the sort of problematic, stodgy labor unions of the time, the sort of corrupt mafia, you've seen the Irishman, blah, 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 all those people, all of those labor unions supported civil rights um, in those days, like all of them. So. Yeah. Well,
4: it, uh, the un- having a union has been the greatest anti-racist uh, institution we've ever had. It's the thing that actually breaks down racial a- animosity and discriminatory attitudes among people. And ultimately actually deals with racial oppression in a real material substantive way. Because like yeah. racial oppression can only exist if there are economic inequalities. Otherwise, why is there oppression going on? If, like, the person being oppressed has an exit option or can actually fight back, then it's not really oppression. It's a fight. But if it's oppression, like, there's inequality of material income or material resources. And so, like, unions are the means of actually uh, creating a much better life with much better uh, allocation of resources, much higher living standards for most working people. The thing in New York this week is that uh, the... (laughs) City Council just voted uh, that service sector workers that are not in unions cannot be arbitrarily fired, uh, which is the first time in this country's history. I'm pretty sure it's the first in the nation right now um, where basically if you are a union member, you most likely there might be some cases where this isn't true, but most likely you cannot be arbitrarily fired. Yeah, because that's part of the conditions of of having the union uh, is that it has some floor of protection for most workers, uh, they don't show up one day, or they, you know, they screw up one thing or whatever. They could be fired whenever, if the boss or if the boss just thinks, yeah, you're not. working like hard them. They don't like, the yeah. they,
1: they don't like the way they. don't like the way they. smile or something. Yeah, right. I mean, like, the guy's got a weird smile. And fire him. Yeah.
4: Exactly. So. Service sector workers cannot be arbitrarily well. I don't know exactly when it takes effect. I should probably know this, but um, <laughs> but uh, it will be the case. The service sector workers cannot be arbitrarily fired. This is massive. A massive and super victory. Important. Massive both, victory. Both yeah. for the unorganized workers in New York City, but also yeah. the organized workers in New York City, because this makes their job a lot easier as well. That yeah. mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the process of organizing uh, new locations. You know, the bargaining committee can't just be kicked out automatically as soon as activity starts. So this is massive. This is really important. Um, And we'll keep covering. I'm sure we'll keep talking about this in the future as well. Yeah. Um, I wanted to say also that like we, you know, this whole let's just kind of pressure a politician to doing the right thing. Uh, We've done this a million times and it's dressed up in different language. There's more liberal versions of it. There's more radical versions of it. But it it has severe limitations. I'm not saying, like, it's not, like, super, super strict that, like, this doesn't ever work. But especially when it comes to, like, massive questions of budgets and of, like, industries that are making tons and tons of profit, like, this is not going to be a, let's just convince some hearts and minds on this. Let's just tell someone who, t- who campaigned on one thing that, you know, you have to do this thing and jeopardize everything else, like even even yeah, if- you know
1: so, you know, that famous scene in sorry to bother you i mean sorry to bother yes. you like this was the what the whole movie is about he uncovers the bad thing that the company did and his solution at first is to uh go on like all the talk shows all the late night talk shows and go call your congressman this is a this is a version of call your congressman right. and um the, everyone does it and then nothing happens right <laughs> um and then it wasn't until he realized that he needed to participate and help uh the labor struggle that he that he had previously shunned in the movie that he was able to that, that, that anything was able to happen um right. and that's just what that, that that's what the movie was about like and, it, and it's you know the, the, that's that's just the only way to do it i mean the the sort of call your this is a version of call your congressman
4: yeah that's it there, there is no substitute for actual organizing and we saw that in iowa this year that like the yeah. Democratic Party tried to do every single thing they could to destroy Bernie's campaign in Iowa. They tried to torpedo us, torpedo us so frickin' bad, and they they even they like stole the the election results on the night of and had fucking uh, Rat Pete... Buttigieg what, uh, fucking yeah, Buttigieg yeah, yeah. <laughs> announced on the night of like oh yeah I won like even though we were up all night into like up until like three and four in the morning counting uh five, or like calling uh, precinct captains saying. Uh, what were the numbers in your precinct? Oh, it looks like Bernie's winning, actually, from our internal data that we knew to fucking organize around because we knew they were going to fuck us over. Like, I'm using we kind of generously. I'm not, I was a volunteer. But <laughs> like, it. this is, like, it is not going to be through social media. You cannot organize political campaigns through social media. Like, you can get some signatures on, like, a, a change.org or whatever. I remember a million of those during the Obama era, and that really worked but um it, it's it, this there is no substitute for actual political campaigns and political organizing and especially labor organizing like this is the lifeblood of left politics this is like you just have to look at the actual history like the problem is that we haven't had a left and we haven't had uh, a labor a, a strong healthy militant labor movement in 40 50 60 years so like we look to people, we look to ideas in the last couple of decades and they're all losers. Like, yeah. <laughs> like losers. I'm sorry. Bye,
1: but bye-bye. You're losers. You're very loser. Loser ideas.
4: This is, you know, I mean, I'm that. being I'm being a little superfluous or, or not superfluous, hyperbolic. That's the word I wanted. Or being a little hyperbolic, right? I'm being hyperbolic right now. But the point is, is that like, look to when the left actually won things. Look to... Yeah. Look, yeah. If you want to actually learn about the civil rights movement, you actually have to learn that it was there was deep connections to the labor movement that yeah. like it wasn't you know MLK changing hearts and minds you know and convincing people that racism is bad like yeah it you know you look to the labor movement of the 30s like you look to like the like the New Deal legislation that didn't come out of FDR's head like you know yeah. just you know uh, if it if all it took was just a good idea like the left would have won like over a century ago. Like we've won the ideas over and over again. Like you know, we win some fights and then, or we win the ideas sometimes. Then we then we recede and we come back and we have to start over again uh, because these things are ephemeral. Like political organizing, labor organizing cannot be substituted.
0: All right, I think that's a good place to leave it. I'm honestly like. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to, to to rest a little bit and not think about uh, this debate that's been going on forever. I think everything you said is absolutely right. All I can think about is um, the reactions to the very common sense um, argument that you're making, Kale. Um, because, yeah, I think I think people's anger and rage is being exploited right now to a point where they're being convinced that there are easy answers and there is a shortcut and there just isn't. And so I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how this all plays out. But thank you to our audience. Uh, we are going to take a break next week for the holidays. Um, but we'll be back in the new year, um, as Kale mentioned, with uh, new episodes of weekends. And that's all I have to say. Any final words, guys?
1: I'm going to miss you guys. Um, I'm going miss, to miss our talks, our time together. It's very, always a lot of fun. I always learn a lot um yeah it's just gonna be i can't believe we're, it's gonna be all the way till next year we're not gonna see each other uh it's very
4: sad i mean we can still do this next very week sad. we just won't record it you guys won't. right see. we'll just do a private <laughs> session yeah.
0: Uh, yeah i like that. i like that idea a lot anyway guys um, uh thank you for oh go ahead kale
4: I, I was just gonna say happy holidays um that thank you so much to our our audience that this has been the most fun i've ever had working on anything ever that it's been an utmost pleasure and privilege and honor to be working with you, Anna, and with you, Nando, and with the late, great Michael Brooks, um, that this this show has meant so much to me, and I'm glad to be on it and hope to keep working on it next year. Kale, you're
1: going to make me cry, dude. What the hell? I know,
0: seriously. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. stop it. Yeah, no, it really is a pleasure working with you guys, and, um, you know, just... I love the format of this show. I love the deep dives. I love thinking critically about these things in a nuanced way. And, you know, got to give a shout out to Boscar and um, Jacobin overall for providing a space to to have these conversations. Um, They're really, really important. And uh, hopefully this show um, and others on the Jacobin channel um, continue to grow in the new year. So uh, thank you, everyone, for watching. Um, I hope you have uh, happy holidays, and we'll see you next year. Bye. Thank you.